Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Would you please open your Bibles and join me in John 17? If you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one to you. You can raise your hand and uh, feel free to keep it if you'd like. Keep it and pass it on. Keep it and read it with a coworker or leave it in your seat when you leave this morning. As Andy just prayed, we are continuing to follow Jesus together in the Gospel of John. And we are in Jesus' high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. And as you're taking notes this morning, the subtitle is God's Glory Gleams. That's the subtitle this morning. I want to jump right in. Our text is verses 6 to 12. I'm going to read them, set them before us, and then we'll look to the Lord in prayer. John 17, beginning in verse 6 through 12. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, so that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, this is the Lord's prayer. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, once again, we return to these simple yet unbelievably weighty words of Jesus as he prays on our behalf to you, Father. And we need, we, we are in great need to understand these words. Jesus' words are simple in terms of grammar, and yet there is a gravity to them. There is a mystery and a weightiness to them that... Only your spirit and his illuminating and empowering work can cause us not only to understand and believe, but to rejoice at. And so that's our prayer this morning. One of the many ones that we ask, Lord, is that we would, we would see your glory, Father. We would glorify Jesus, that the spirit would accomplish your work in us by making your word known to us and that we would rejoice that our, that our souls would be satisfied this morning with your love and grace that comes to us through your word. So, Lord, to that end, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Something to think about. Maybe this is something you have not thought about for a while. Why? Did you become a Christian? 
Maybe think back to whether you were five or even younger than you can realize or 21 like me in college or perhaps in your 40s or whenever it was you became a Christian. Why? If you were to recount the telling of that story of you uh, repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus as Lord, swearing allegiance to him, why did you do that? Maybe you, you would say something like, I was convinced of the truth of the gospel and cast my life upon the rock that is Christ. Maybe you had many questions regarding uh, apologetics, um, the history and transmission of the Bible, and the relationship between Christianity and science and, and comparative religion and more. And in your investigation, you were led to the firm conclusion that Christ and his word are true. Why did you become a Christian? Where does the credit lie for you becoming a Christian? Maybe related to that is another question. Why are you still a Christian? So maybe your whole life you've professed Christ. Maybe it's been less than a year. But why are you still here? And maybe this morning you're not yet a Christian. You're considering Jesus. You're investigating his claims. You're looking around at different churches, uh, studying different religions. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. And I want to ask you, why are you not a Christian? And what do you think it would take for you to become a Christian? So when I ask, why are you a Christian and why are you still a Christian? Why are you not a Christian and what might it take for you to become a Christian? There is a question beneath all of those questions and it's, what role does God play, if any, in your answer to those questions? When I asked why you, were, you became a Christian, was your thoughts filled with, well, I, 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 I. And if I asked the question, why are you still a Christian? And your answer was, well, I, and then I, and then I. And then if you're not a Christian, and you say, well, I'm not a Christian because I, and I, and I. Notice that with all those I's, there is no God. What role does God play in your answers to those questions? Well, Jesus is continuing his high priestly prayer. And as I prayed in the beginning, there is a density and there is a gravity. Jesus' grammar in the Gospel of John is very simple. He speaks very simple words. But what Jesus reveals about the Gospel and the mysteries of God's Gospel plan have depths that we cannot plumb. Jesus continues in John 17, his high priestly prayer on this last supper evening and he answers questions like i just asked us indirectly because jesus's focus is the role that god plays in salvation he answers questions like these and more as he takes as he takes us as as the apostles and then we all believers listen in to jesus praying to the father and we're blurred out, blurred out bystanders in the background. As we listen to Jesus, Jesus in this portion of his prayer takes us both behind the scenes in the gospel and also center stage in the gospel. Passages like ours this morning reveal to us that we need revelation from God 
to rightly understand the glories of God in the fullness of his gospel plan. So, as you take notes, here's our three points. Point number one, taken from the title of the sermon, God's glory gleams in our election. That's verses 2. We're going to peek back to last week. And then verses 6 through 10. And our second point then, we're going to discover that God's glory gleams in our perseverance. So keep his word. And we're going to take a second pass through verses 6 through 10. And then we will close our time in point number three. God's glory gleams in our preservation. So keep his word and depend on him. And that's verses 9 through 12. Um, If you're familiar with any of these terms, you know that volumes and shelves and libraries worth of books have been written on each of these points. And I want to for us to see how Jesus weaves these together in his prayer to the Father as we listen on, that we might be instructed by his prayer and see how the Father answers Jesus' prayer. And we learn things about ourselves. We learn things about the fullness of the mystery of his gospel plan. And so, put your seatbelt on. Point number one, God's glory gleams in our election. Look again at verse 2, and then again 6 through 10. Jesus is praying in verse 2, Since, as he prays to the Father, since you have given him authority, the Father gives the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life, and listen, to all whom you have given him. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people, Here it is, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those, and here it is again, whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. If you read John 17 and you uh, look to outline or follow Jesus' train of thought, Last week together, we saw in the first five verses, Jesus is, is, is praying to the Father in a complex way about the Father glorifying the Son so the Son can glorify the Father. So in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is focused on praying for or to the Father. And now as Jesus continues to pray to the Father, in verses 6 to around 19, he shifts to praying for the apostles in particular, and by extension, all believers. And then the third movement is in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, where Jesus prays for all future believers, focused on you and me and all gospel professors. So as we enter verses 6 through 10, Jesus' prayer focuses 
it moves from the glorious relationship between the Father and the Son to now he is praying about the glory he receives from the disciples, including you and me. Specifically, what Jesus prays in these verses are what are called the doctrines of election and perseverance of the saints. If I can give you a summary of what Jesus is praying about, it's what as you, as you read the Bible and you come across the word elect is used a num- many times in, in the New Testament and synonyms like chosen and predestined and more. Jesus is praying about that to the Father about us. He's praying about our election and our perseverance. And perseverance is the next point. So what does that mean? Jesus is taking us somewhere. Where is he taking us and why? So so look again in your your Bible at verses 2, 6, and 9. I I pointed them out to you and I read it the first time, but this first point, Jesus is revealing to us as we are blurred bystanders that God's glory gleams in our election. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 2. Jesus says that he has all authority from the Father to give eternal life, and you can underline this. Who does Jesus give eternal life to? To all whom you, Father, have given him, Jesus. The Father gave people to Jesus. That's verse 2. Look at verse 6. Two times in verse 6. To the people, and here it is, whom you gave me out of the world. And that language is huge because we know that the world refers not just to the geography and geology, but to the system of rebellion and beliefs that are in rejection of God. So so verse 6 again, Jesus is praying to the Father, and the Father gave Jesus people out of the world. He continues, yours they were, and you gave them to me. So two times in verse 6, and then finally in verse 9, Jesus again, listen to how discriminating Jesus is. And Jesus discriminates in the best sense of the word. Look at what he says. I am not praying for the world. So in the beginning of verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them. That's his followers. I am praying not praying for the world. So that's, there's, a, there's a demarcation line. There's a separation. So in Jesus' high priestly prayer is what we call it, as our high priest before he goes to offer the sacrifice himself for our salvation, he prays as a good priest does, and he doesn't pray for all the world. He only prays for those, well, it says, I'm not praying for the world in verse 9, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. Jesus does not pray for the whole world. He prays for only those whom the Father gives him. So this is why part of reading the Bible and then part of preaching the Bible as we move through the Bible is to see the themes and accent notes that the Bible gives us and to draw out what the Bible says to expose it to us and then to tell it to us. So in these, in verses 2, 6, and 9, four times, Jesus repeats himself. Now, Jesus only needs to say something once for us to listen. 
But when he repeats himself four times in this dense cluster of words, that's to tell us, take note. Four times Jesus prays about the cosmic gospel reality that the Father gave people from out of the world's system and rebellion to God, the Father gave people to Jesus. And listen, even though these people were in the world system, what the Bible elsewhere calls dead in our trespasses and sins, or what John told us, the darkness hates the light. Every believer was once part of the darkness who hates the light, and yet the Father gave people to Jesus. And these specific people, Jesus says, indicates, that they always belong to the Father. And yet, these people in the world system still needed to be made right with the Father. They belonged to the Father, but they were of the world. They belonged to Him. And so what did God do? God did the gospel. The Father sent the Son in the power of the Spirit to atone for these people's sins. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose from the grave so that through the Son... These people of the world would be reconciled to the Father whom they belonged to. Sins washed white by Jesus' blood, and then the Father gifts them to Jesus as Jesus' body and bride and church. I told you it was dense. The words are simple, but Jesus is Trinitarian because he's part of the Trinity. And so the way he unfolds the gospel, I, I, I wonder what the apostles look like as they're listening to this prayer, right? As Peter got his hands folded, head bowed, and one eye open, listening to Jesus, trying to understand what is he saying? What are you talking about? And Jesus is praying four times here. He is, it's like it's a hammer hitting the nail. You can hear the drumbeat. There is a rhythm to this prayer that Jesus makes very clear that God's Glory is bound up in the reality of the gospel that the Father gave people to Jesus so Jesus would save those people to reconcile them to the Father so the Father gives them to the Son. And the, this is called the doctrine of election. Uh, election is not some theological word that some theologian foisted on Scripture as I said earlier, it's all over Scripture. It's inescapable. It's just how you define it. And what we're discovering is Jesus has this rhythm to the text is he wants us all to know that God's glory gleams. It shines. It's, it shimmers off of the truth of election. Now, we've already heard this. Uh, we heard this back in John 6. Let me just remind us. If you want to turn there, you can. But in John 6... Beginning in verse 37, listen to what we heard a long time ago. Jesus is, is dueling with the religious leaders, um, and he says to them in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
And, and, and we saw back then when we looked at this in the message that when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, that's 100% of the people. Not one person is lost. Everybody whom the Father gives to Jesus will most certainly come to Jesus, and Jesus will most certainly never cast them out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we spent a lot of time in that message on John 6, on this text, looking at that passage. But listen to how emphatic and clear Jesus' words are. No one, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws a person to Jesus. And we saw in that message that it would be a misunderstanding, a misdefinition of the word draw to think that God is like some animal owner, just, come here, little guy. As if he's trying to woo us. Draw does not mean woo. You, you, don't, you don't woo shades. You draw them open or you draw them closed. The word draw means that God draws us or drags us or moves us. Like drawing a net of fish is, an, is, is the way the word is used elsewhere in Scripture. Drawing a net onto shore. So, so what this means then is Jesus is just praying what he already taught us back in John 6. And another connection, I, I do want you to join me here. Please join me over in Ephesians chapter 1. Beautiful passage. We saw this together some years ago. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul picks up these ideas that Jesus is speaking of in verses 4 through 10. There's a chain of gospel events here. And what we're doing is we're seeing how Ephesians 1 and John 6 link up with this big idea that Jesus gives us in John 17 of what it means, this idea of election. And so we've seen that no one comes to, the, to Jesus unless the Father gives him to Jesus. Now listen to how Paul explains it. Again, this is behind-the-scenes footage. This is director's commentary on how the gospel works. And so we're seeing behind the scenes, Ephesians 1, verse 4. And this, this begins to answer the question of, why are you a Christian? And why are you still a Christian? And why are you not a Christian? And why you should become a Christian? Listen to this in verse 4, Ephesians 1. Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Pause there for a moment. That word chose is a synonym of the other word the Bible uses, the word election. And don't, don't misunderstand election in a democratic sense. That God voted for you. And he really hopes that there's no dangling chads. 
or any issues with the machines. No, the synonym of election is choose, it's select. So again, Ephesians 1.4, even as the Father chose you, chose you in Jesus. Well, when did you do that? Before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing before Genesis 1? He was, well, he chose a people for himself. That's what God was doing. Within the confines of the Trinity, God's plan all along was the gospel. For God the Son to become flesh, to become incarnate, to live, die, and rise, <clears throat> excuse me, in our place so that a bride would be purchased for the Son and God would be magnified in it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him that's jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And on the text goes. So back in John 17, what is Jesus doing? Jesus prays to the Father. And in this prayer, the Father's glory is revealed in the Father giving elect people for Jesus to save. Remember, we're blurred bystanders, behind-the-scenes footage. How does the gospel work? It works this way. Behind the scenes, the Trinity planned the gospel from all time, chose a people from all time. The chain in Ephesians 1 is chose, predestined, adopted, glorious grace, redemption, forgiveness, planned for the fullness of time according to God's will. And that glorifies the Father. When we, the saints, recognize that all credit and boasting is to the grace of God and nothing in ourselves that God chose us, that the Father gave you. Not the idea of you. The Father didn't open a door to see if you'd walk through it. This is a specific people with names. God gave you to Jesus. That was his plan before the foundation of the world and God giving you to Jesus and Jesus living for you and dying for you glorifies the Father. God is a happy Savior. And election makes him happy. And far from diminishing his glory, God's greater glory gleams in his election. It glorifies the Trinity for Jesus to die and rise for you and me. And it glorifies the Trinity for the Spirit to apply that redemption to you and me. This whole first point, we are merely passive bystanders watching with the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father planning the gospel, Jesus performing the gospel, the Spirit proclaiming or applying the gospel so that we can proclaim the gospel. We simply marvel. 
And so Jesus wants the apostles, the disciples, and you and me to know that God's glory shines in his election of us. Jesus' glory gleams in his salvation of us because we belong to Jesus. Just peek again at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Part of our glorifying Jesus. Just pause for a moment there. How do you glorify Jesus in this? Simply by being a trophy of grace. There's nothing really in you. The fact that the Father gives you to Jesus, Jesus dies and rises for you and fills, fills you with the Spirit, and then now you become his body and bride, you glorify the Lord because of it. Like the moon reflecting the sun, your mere existence as a Christian, your presence in this world glorifies, magnifies, makes famous Jesus as our Savior because you are a blood-bought saint. And so the trophy of grace is that Jesus gets the reward. Remember Hebrews 12, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And that joy was glorifying the Father and bringing you to himself. We ought to spend much time not only thinking of our salvation that we didn't work for, we didn't earn, and certainly did not deserve, and yet God was pleased to adopt us to himself because of his glorious grace. We should think about the mere fact that you're a trophy of grace and that you claim the name of Christ ultimately belongs to God but you should also spend time thinking about what that says of your neighbor's salvation. This room is filled with people who from before time, the people behind you and in front of you and next to you, God chose before the first Adam was created, before the first quasar was thrown into existence. God had chosen that person. It reminds me of a comment that C.S. Lewis made in his essay called The Weight of Glory. And he talks about sitting on a bus and he's thinking about 10 billion years from now, what it would look like to look at each, either person on either side of him. And that if he could have a moment of being, seeing them in this moment, that this person to his right maybe is an elect person who, who if he saw that person in their glory in this moment, that he'd be tempted to worship that person and then the person who refuses the gospel and does not believe and is consigned to eternity in hell is a horror of shock in the worst dreams ever and what that would be like to experience that. In a similar way, we should think about every person in this room will live forever in one place or another, heaven or hell, and the splendor of what it means, the sheer joy and wonder and awe that we are elect, not because of ourselves, because we were from out of the world. We were enemies of God, and we did not want to be reconciled to him, and yet it was the Father's pleasure, his good pleasure and grace to take rebels like you and me and give us to the Son for the Son to save. God's glory gleams in our election. Our hearts are meant to well up in wonder and worship, prayer and praise at this biblical truth. 
that no one comes to Jesus. You did not come to Jesus unless the f first the Father gave you to Jesus. It was not your intellect. It was not your will. What God does against our will is save us and then gives us a new will, which we want nothing more than to be saved and to love Jesus. And the credit and power of salvation belongs to God and not us. And so we marvel at his sheer grace in Jesus. So believer, God's glory gleams in your election. And not only yours, but your Christian neighbors. And not only that, point number two, God's glory gleams in our perseverance, so keep his word. Jesus does not just talk about the doctrine of election in this prayer. He also puts forward the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Listen again now to verses 6 through 10, but now tune your ears to hear what Jesus says about the apostles and us, about all believers. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And then here, here's, here's the first one. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me. Here it is again. They have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Threaded, woven in this tapestry, there is another side, Jesus reveals. There's another side to the coin of election, and the other side to the coin of election is perseverance. As we take the second pass, Jesus introduces us to a chain of salvation events, so to speak. Now, the first point was the behind-the-scenes secret councils of the Trinity from before all time. But now we come center stage, no longer focused on the secret councils behind the scenes. Now Jesus takes a center stage to gospel truths focusing on our experience of salvation. And what we see, and what Jesus prays here in John 17, is listen again to these verbs. Verse 6, they kept. Verse 7, they know. Verse 8, they received. Verse 8, they believed. So behind the scenes, of the gospel is the Father giving the elect to his Son to redeem. For you and me, front stage of the gospel, if you are elect, you actually need to believe the Trinitarian gospel. You have to believe. Verse 8 says, you actually need to receive God's word into the fabric of your soul. It's not just a mere intellectual assent, that's interesting and then you move on, but it's by faith, with belief, that you, you receive God's word into your soul. You need to know God at a relational level. That's also verse 8. And in verse 6, you need to keep God's word. I, I move this in reverse through those verses. 
Belief, receiving, knowing, keeping. And those are descriptions of what the elect do. Two sides, one gospel coin, election on the one hand, which we're largely unaware of, and perseverance on the other, which we are aware of. Jesus' disciples, you and me, if you claim Christ, if you are considering Christ, the elect keep God's word by faith. That's a big idea in this second strand woven in this passage is that the elect, although we're passive in our election and passive in our salvation, here we see that the elect keep God's word by faith because they love the God of the gospel and they believe and receive Jesus. So in verse 6, Jesus says, they have kept your word. That word keep is a good word. It's a beautiful word. It's a word you should think about. It's used in different ways in the Bible. It means to watch over like a guard with a prisoner. Vigilance so they don't escape. So the Bible and the life of a believer is one that we, we guard it with all vigilance to keep it. Or like a watchman on the city wall, making sure that enemies are not coming to attack. That's what the word keep means. The word keep also means to protect with one's life, to keep something unharmed or undisturbed. So, so when we see the men in the Old Testament go to war on behalf of, of their families and children and God's glory, they're, they're keeping the people by, by putting their life in the way. They're protecting with one's life to keep something unharmed or undisturbed. That's why this book that we have is bloodstained. Because the blood of Jesus and the blood of the martyrs have preserved the word of God for us because people have been willing to die so that you could have this book in your lap. Because the elect love the word. To keep the word is also related to the idea of prizing and treasuring. So yes, it's guarding. Yes, it's protecting. But it's also, it's a treasure. It's, it's, it's the it, well, it's, it's why the psalmist prays that we rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure. We guard it we, as, the, as the most precious thing in our lives. And to keep also means to observe or obey, to persist in obedience. That's why I said it's a beautiful word. John, in his gospel, is a master of double meaning. And he chooses words, Jesus chooses words, that you're supposed to go, what am I supposed to do with the word? Am I supposed to treasure it or am I supposed to obey it? Yes. Am I supposed to protect it and guard it or, or what? Yes. That's what the elect do. How do you know that you're elect? Well, you love Jesus. It's an imperfect love. But you also keep his word. And so what Jesus is praying to the Father and Jesus' glory is bound up not only in saving a people the Father gave him, but also now that these people are transformed. You and I are now new creation. A book that was once boring, dusty, and dull now becomes the lamp to our feet and light to our path. That's what it means. 
This is what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus to the glory of the Father. We guard the Bible. We treasure the Bible. We obey the Bible. We believe the Bible because that's what Jesus means when he says, your word. It's not an abstract idea. It's talking Genesis to Revelation, the complete revelation that we have. Because the whole Bible is the whole story of the whole gospel. The whole Bible is the whole story of the whole gospel. And so the believer keeps God's word, not just guarding it and treasuring it, but we actually obey it. Our lives are transformed. We no longer are darkness who hates the light. Now we love the light and hate the darkness that we once lived in. There is transformation. Jesus reveals that the elect are word believers and word keepers. We treasure all the gospel from all the Bible, which shapes all of life, because we are elect, and it goes hand in hand. And the reason this is called perseverance is because it's what we keep doing. The non-elect are not word believers, not gospel embracers, and not word keepers, and they don't care that it's so. You mean God says something about how I'm supposed to express my sexuality and gender and marriage. And there's such a thing as biblical manhood and womanhood and more. I hate that, says the world. And the Christian knows that that's where life is found in the gospel expressed in biblical marriage and, and more and more. And so when Jesus is praying to the Father for his glory that we are word keepers, this is another way of speaking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That is all true Christians show their love for the Trinity by walking in his word until Jesus brings us home. We keep going. We endure. We persevere. Jesus already told us this back in John 14. Listen to or just, just glance over. Turn over to John 14. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said something similar. John 14, 23. Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will, do you see it? Keep my word. But do you see the connection of the affection and dedication and belief to the devotion? If anyone loves me, then he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And just so it's clear, the opposite is true. Verse 24, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So Jesus is clear. Our word keeping is tied to our God loving. Now listen, if we are honest with ourselves, none of us is perfect in our love for the Lord. We wish that we loved him more. We pray that we would love him more. We, we, we desire to glorify God with our obedience, but we see that we fall short. But listen, here's the Bible's teaching. Here's what Jesus wants us to know. Despite our remaining sin, despite our weaknesses, despite our frailty and the like, true believers persevere in keeping the word and thereby persevere in the faith. And the word persevere is such a good word. It's drawn from the idea of the Bible because it means continuing in a course of action even in the face of difficulty. Even in the face of difficulty, 
you don't let go of Christ, you cling to him. And because Jesus said you will have tribulation in this world. And so there's a question now. Jesus prayed, Father, they have kept your word. And so as you shined or as we take the mirror of the word and put it back upon ourselves, there is a sobering question. And the question is this, are you a word keeper? Are you a word treasurer? Are you a word obeyer? Are you a word believer? Not just in public, but in private. You see, the elect, point one, keep God's word, point two. We persevere. And we keep his word, and, and how do you do that? Well, part of it is we, we love the word preached. We love the word prayed. Your, your heart sings when you hear the service lead read a scripture to open the service, and then you begin to notice that his long prayer is shaped by the text that he read to us. And you hear him praying scripture back to God, and it's delicious to your soul because we love God's word deep in the recesses of our heart. We love God's word preached. We love God's word prayed. We loved God's word memorized. What did, what did Psalm 119 say? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We love God's word sung in the songs that we sing, and we love God's word read to us, and we read ourselves. The elect keep God's word. We are faithful in our obedience. Not perfect, but faithful. And the Christian life is a life of faith and effort. The Christian life is a life of grace and dedication. The Christian life is a life of guarding and keeping, worshiping and obeying, election and perseverance. It's not one or the other, it's both and. But you might be a frazzled mom. You might be a college student thinking that you can barely survive. You have your classes, which is a load that you can't bear, not to mention even more the temptations that you face on campus and the outright coercion there is for you to bow the knees to the ideologies of the world. You might be a retiree who sees far more failure in the rearview mirror than success. Whoever you are, and it's all of us, when you look at yourself, we can see how far short we fall, how imperfect we are, and, and others seem way better at keeping the word than you. We're just good at putting on a show. And perhaps you think Jesus isn't really glorified in your life. You read verse 10, they're glorified in me, and you think, I don't know about that. I seem far more skilled at de-glorifying God or robbing God of glory than actually glorifying him. And yet deep down, like the Old Testament saints, you are wholehearted and you, you, you want to keep his word, but you doubt as you look at yourself, what's the answer? Look to Christ. The beauty of election and the beauty of perseverance of the saints is that we don't look at ourselves primarily, but we look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking inside our health and how good we are at ourselves. 
This might be a typo in my text. You know that's not what the Bible says. Never do we look into ourselves. What does it say? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance, endurance, the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Part of our perseverance is you have to have a right compass and you have to know where the true north is. His name is Jesus. I can't remember if I told you this story before, but when I was 18, my mom conned me into doing a 2.7 mile open water swim race in Donner Lake. The water was freezing. The lake is so long, you go from one beach to the next and has a slight bend in it. The beach is so far away and just the chop on the waves is so high that you actually can't see where you're swimming. And so when you're standing on the shoreline about to enter the water, you have to look for one of the tall granite peaks in the Sierras and then sight off that peak to see where the, the beach is and trust that the mountain's not going to move. But then while you swim, you move. You're sight stroking every seven strokes to look up to see and you're recalibrating and forever freezing, you persevere and you make it to the other side. That's kind of like what perseverance of the saints is. We don't look to ourselves. We don't trust our swimming or our running or our faithfulness. We trust Christ and him in us and we sight off him and we look to Jesus because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. You're not the founder of your faith and you're not the perfecter of your faith. Jesus is, Hebrews 12, 2. So there's, there's more gospel, church, because you might be the frazzled mom, the college student, the retiree, all of us. We have to sight off Jesus, pursue him and persevere, but there is more gospel to be had because you would be mistaken to think that election is all of God and perseverance is all of you. There's one more detail. There is more that Jesus reveals in this prayer. There is more gospel to be had. Point number three, God's glory gleams in our preservation. So keep his word and depend on him. Verses 9 through 12. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world and they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Here it is. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them synonym of keep, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Where's the more gospel? We just spent a whole lot of time in, ver in, in point two talking about keeping, but do you hear that Jesus has more keeping to pray about and talk about? Did you hear the good news? Look at verse 12. Here it is. While I was with them, Jesus with the apostles, I kept them in your name, 
And now verse 11, Jesus is going to the Father, and I am no longer in the world, there in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus prays for the Father to continue to do what Jesus did. Keep us. So point two, our perseverance is us keeping the word. But as we persevere, God preserves us. Because the Holy Father keeps us in his name. Here's the beautiful mystery of the gospel. It's not like the Father elects us then leaves us alone to figure out how to persevere. No, God preserves us so that we persevere. That's what it's all Jesus is talking about, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the previous chapters. Jesus asks the Father to keep us so that we keep keeping the word. Did you make that connection? This prayer, so when I asked, why are you sitting here this morning? This is why. It's not because you're a skilled practitioner at persevering. It's because God is skilled at preserving you. That's why you're here. The credit belongs to the Lord. This is the mystery of both our perseverance, keeping his word, our active obedience, and God keeping us with his word, preserving us. Perseverance and preservation, two different things that go together. Do you remember Philippians 2? Do you remember how simple this verse is? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. What's the command to us? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, a.k.a. persevere. But there's another verse. What does verse 13 say? For, so underneath my working out my salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when Jesus prays, Father, keep them in your name, and God does by his spirit, it is a mistake to think that God does all the work to get you saved, and then you do all the work to keep yourself saved. Because it does not fully depend upon us. If it did, you would not be here, and neither would I. No, the glory is that God's left hand of election and right hand of preservation ensure that we will, you will finally persevere by keeping the word. It's like, how does this work? How does God's preservation and perseverance work? It's like, it's like my two-year-old son. We have a big family van. The door to shut the van is ten times his weight, if not more. And he puts his hand on the door, and he shuts it, and he said to me, Look, Daddy, I did it. I did it, Daddy. But he, physics, he literally cannot move the door. What he doesn't know is that when he went to shut it, my hand was on it, pushing it shut. It's cute. I love it. He takes all the credit. I smile. But that's how this 
works when we think about election, perseverance, and preservation. We are like the child who says, look, Daddy, I did it. I resisted temptation. I love my wife as Christ loved the church. I am raising my children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. I am putting a governor on my mouth. I am bearing the fruit of the Spirit, even though it's the fruit of the Spirit. So, so what we do is we're like that, where we, God, we genuinely obey. We genuinely work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not an illusion. We're not robots. And yet in God's mystery of how it works, as we persevere, he preserves us. Look, Daddy, I shut the door. And he smiles and said, good job. Yes, you did. And his hand is pushing it shut. This illustrates why these doctrines uniquely glorify the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because He gets all this great glory in the gospel of our salvation and we get salvation and joy. We're not robots. We really keep His word. And yet we're not sovereign in our salvation. God is. And for all that, God gets glory and you get unspeakable joy. And that's what Jesus is praying about. If Jesus did not pray, Father, keep them with your name, we would be in jeopardy. So our two-sided coin has changed. The coin now is actually the gospel side of election, the gospel side of preservation, and that thin middle in the coin, that's our perseverance. It's God on both sides and our little part. Jesus' interwoven tapestry of election, perseverance and preservation are inseparable from one another and it's meant to fuel your faith and trust in Jesus because we don't need to be dejected and depressed because God is for us and not against us in his gospel and you're here because he wants you here and so if you're considering Christ, it is God's kindness this morning that's meant to lead you to repentance for you to hear these words, these complex, big Bible ideas, and to know that there is a Savior who died on the cross and is calling you to repent and believe in Him. And when you do that, you find out that you're actually elect before the foundation of the world. This is a big reason, this idea of perseverance, while you've Maybe these words are familiar to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Wh whose joy, by the way? Is it God's joy or yours? Yes. God keeps us from stumbling and he'll present us. I read... Jude 24 and 25, every single service, because we are amnesiacs who forget that God is for us in the gospel and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ and it's based on Jesus' performance and not yours, so obey. God's glory gleams in our election, in our preservation, and our perseverance, so keep the word and depend upon Christ and his spirit. Amen? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace in the gospel, the mysteries that we can marvel at. Lord, for our part, we pray that we would be faithful in keeping your word by your spirit. And Father, we thank you that you keep us happily as a good father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.